Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. We'll continue our discussion on the rapture and the tribulation. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, we'll begin our lesson. Let me open us up in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you again for this beautiful day, and thank you for this group and the opportunity to gather together and study your word. And Father, as we read today more about the end times and the rapture and the tribulation, we're just so thankful for what you've given us in your word, the ability to understand what the end times look like. And you've also promised to keep us out of the really tough times of the tribulation. I'm just so thankful. We're all thankful for your grace. Lord, I ask that you speak through me. Let it not be my words, but your words today as we go through the teaching and help us all take that and use it in a way that will glorify you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you want to be going over there, we are going to continue to discuss some of the end time events that Paul has been talking about both in the first book of Thessalonians as well as continuing even last week in the first chapter. And so what Paul's now going to do is he's going to continue to explain to the Thessalonians that they are not in the day of the Lord. They are not in the tribulation time. It's only for unbelievers, as he has been telling them. And we'll reflect on some of the things that Paul has told them previously. Remember I shared last time with you that Apparently, there had been some type of letter circulated among the Thessalonians. It was a false letter, but it was saying that they had missed the rapture, basically, that they were in the tribulation. And so Paul is going to address that, as we'll see. And so let's just jump right in. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's the rapture, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message, so some preaching, or a letter as if it is from us. That's the letter I was describing. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord is the tribulation, the judgment. That's what the day of the Lord is. And he spoke at length about this gathering together to him, the rapture. You remember we talked about that a few lessons ago when we were in 1 Thessalonians 4. But if you just flip over there, let me remind you what Paul has previously said about the rapture. This is nothing new. He's been talking about this. Go over to 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll begin in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. At that point, They were worried that people who had died would miss the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. So he's saying, I don't want you to grieve like unbelievers. You don't need to be worried about dead Christians. They're going to be just fine. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those are dead Christians. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. See, it's dead Christians. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, 
and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. What I want you to see here is in verse 16, it says he will descend from heaven, but it doesn't say he touches the earth. So this is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the rapture. This is when we go up to join him. It says, verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. See, it's the rapture. We're going up. Jesus isn't coming all the way down. This is not the second coming. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So that's the rapture. And that's what he's describing here in verse 1. Let's go back over to chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. He says, with regard to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him. That's for believers. That's when we go up and join him in the rapture. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Okay, we're going to camp on this verse for a minute because there's a lot in this one verse. Let me first say that you've heard me describe how some people think that the rapture will happen in the middle of the tribulation, right? You've heard me say that. I don't believe that. Chris doesn't believe that. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, as I've described. I'll show you some verses in a minute. There's several verses that say believers will be kept away from the wrath of God. So in order to be kept out of the wrath of God, we believe the rapture happens first, and then the seven-year tribulation begins, okay? So people who believe in the mid-tribulation rapture, they're Christians. This is just their interpretation. They use this as one of their key verses to say that the rapture happens mid-tribulation. And the reason they say that, and I'm going to show you some verses in a minute, is because it says, for it will not come, meaning the day of the Lord, the tribulation, unless the apostasy comes first. I'm going to come back to that. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so they're saying that this it, they want to even say that that's the rapture and that the Antichrist has to be revealed first. That has to happen, and then they're raptured out. And I'm going to show you the verses in a minute that show that the Antichrist is revealed three and a half years into the tribulation, so halfway through. So they use this verse to say that the rapture happens three and a half years into the tribulation. I'm going to show you why I disagree with that interpretation. I do not think that's what this says. You can twist it and read it that way, but I don't think that's what that says because they're leaving out the first part. It says... It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The word apostasy, it has several meanings. One is it means a falling away. So one thing that we know is that there's going to be a falling away. There's going to be lots of unbelief. There's going to be people who initially maybe appeared to be believers, but they're not. And when all this tribulation starts happening, they're going to say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. And when the Antichrist comes, they're going to align themselves with the Antichrist. So that's the falling away. Excuse me, will there be those that think they're Christians? There won't be true Christians. Let me keep going. I think I'm going to answer that for you. Apostasy also means remove or depart. It can mean depart from the faith. It can be remove me from the scrolls that would say I'm a Christian. But the way this is written in the original language, it also means total apostasy, which means there's going to be no belief. 
The only way there can be no belief is believers have been raptured away. They're gone. And that's why I think this verse supports a pre-tribulation rapture because all the believers have been raptured away and all that's left are non-believers and they're all going to have total unbelief because there's no believers around. And so it also means depart. Christians have all departed. The church is gone. So the church age ends, and I'm going to describe the church age here in a minute. We've talked about it before. The church age is going to be over when tribulation starts. The church is gone. You see why I think this verse actually supports that better? We're gone. Believers are gone. There's no church. All that's left is non-believers. They go into the tribulation. And what he's saying is, he's saying, look, look down in verse 5. He says, do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So he's not going to change what he's been saying in all of 1 Thessalonians. This is very consistent. There's going to be a rapture. We're all going to be gone. Look around. We're all still here. So we can't be in the tribulation because that hasn't happened yet. Now, it is true that during the tribulation, there's going to be apostasy. There's not going to be a church left. They're all unbelievers. And then three and a half years into it, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. So he's giving two pieces of tribulation in this verse, but he's saying, look, none of this has happened. So we can't be in tribulation right now in the tribulation period. That's what he's saying in verse three. Does that make sense? I'm going to give you some more support for what I said, but I'm trying to paint the big picture. And so it says in verse three, the man of lawlessness is revealed in the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is going to happen three and a half years in, and I'm going to show you where I get that in just a second. What's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to come on. There's going to be this world leader that comes on, and initially, very beginning, he's going to look like a really good guy. And all the Europe, all the world nations are going to come together and say, this guy's great. He's going to promise peace to Israel. Everybody's going to be going, yeah, this is the guy. This is the guy. Three and a half years into it, he's going to turn. And now that he has everybody, he's in charge of everything. And he is going to take his seat in the temple, meaning the temple must have to be rebuilt. He is going to force everyone to worship him as God. And then it's really going to get bad. So the second three and a half years of tribulation are called the Great Tribulation. That's when it really, really gets bad. Let me show you a couple of things. First, let me show you one verse why I say that we won't be involved in this. We'll be gone as believers. We'll be raptured out. I've showed this to you before. I'm going over to Revelation 3. And it's interesting when you read Revelation, the first three or so chapters are talking about the church. And then the church is never mentioned again (laughs) in Revelation. You go into tribulation the chapters on tribulation really start in about chapter 6, 6 through 19 or the tribulation. The church is never mentioned. So the church must not be around during tribulation. That's another reason I don't think we're around. Another verse, if you look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, it says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That's the tribulation. 
that hour which is about to come on the whole earth to test those who dwell upon the earth. And then skip down to verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I think that's a verse that says we're going to be kept out of the tribulation. Now, let me go give you, this is going to get a little complicated, and I'm not going to dig. We did a study on Daniel. I think I took us through maybe three or four weeks on it. I'm just going to hit it at a high level today. If you're confused, we can try to answer your questions at the end. First, let me show you what Jesus says about it. So go over to Matthew, first gospel, and I'm going to go to Matthew 24, and I'm going to start in verse 15. This is talking about when the Antichrist then stands in the temple. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place. So that's when he's standing in the temple. That's what Paul was describing just a minute ago. And I'm going to show you where Daniel prophesies this. This is Jesus talking. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation. See, that's the great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Let me just keep reading. And unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. And I talked about that when we studied Matthew 24. Then if anyone who says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. That's because the Antichrist is going to claim to be God. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. We're going to see in the text that we're studying today that Paul's also going to talk about the power that Satan's going to have to even do miracles, to try to convince people that he's God. So that's what Jesus said about it. Now I want to take you over to Daniel 7 in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel, his prophecy is sort of like Revelation is the New Testament. There's a lot in Daniel about the end times. Daniel, if you're having a hard time finding it, just go to your index. But it's to the right of Isaiah, to the right of the Psalms and Proverbs. It's in about the middle between there and the end of the Old Testament. Go over to Daniel 7 first. And I just want to show you a couple of things over here. Let me go to Daniel 7, verse 23. This is talking about the Antichrist. It says, Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue the three kings. And here's what I really want you to see. And he will speak out against the Most High. So this is the Antichrist. And wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And what that means is time is one year, times is two years, and half a time is a half a year. So he's going to be given this power for three and a half years. And I'll show you where it uses that language in other places. But the court will sit for judgment 
and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, that's Jesus Christ, and his kingdom will be an everlasting one, and all the dominions will serve him and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. So this is talking about the three and a half year, the second half of tribulation. Let me show you where I get that. So the second three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Go over to Daniel 9. And we spent a lot of time when we studied this part of Daniel some time ago. But let me just go over this again with you. I'm going to begin in verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Okay, let me stop right there. So what this is saying is you take 62 weeks and you take seven weeks, and that's 69 weeks. And every week, by the way, is seven years. So you take 69 weeks times seven years, and that equals 483 years. Just follow with me. When I taught on this, I gave you a big chart that illustrated this. But just follow what I'm saying. So if you go and you look in Nehemiah 2.5, Artaxerxes issued a decree to rebuild the temple in 444 B.C., okay? And that began, according to this, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. From that day, and it was March 5th, 444 B.C., you count 69 weeks times seven years, and that equals 483 years. And guess what day you land on? The day Jesus came into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. There it is. 69 weeks, 483 years. 69 weeks times 7. But wait, he says 70 weeks have been decreed. So what happened? Where's the 70th week? 70th week hasn't happened yet. It's seven years. That's the tribulation. And what happened is because the Jews rejected Jesus, then it began an intervening period called the church age. That's where we're in right now. You can think of it as a parentheses period. We're in the church age. So as the 69 weeks came along, here came the Messiah. They rejected him. That began the church age. The 70th week is the tribulation. At the beginning of the 70th week, the church age is over because we're raptured up. You with me? You following the sequence here? I know it's a little confusing. And so let's look what happens. Verse 26 in Daniel 9. Then after the 62 weeks, it's after the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So after the 69 weeks, Jesus was cut off. He was put on a cross. The city and sanctuary were destroyed. Okay, now here comes the 70th week, verse 27. And he, being the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. It's for seven years. But in the middle of the week, after three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even upon a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out 
on the one who makes desolate. So that's when the Antichrist comes and stands in the temple. Let me show you one other verse. We could spend a lot of time on this. Go over to Daniel 12, flip over to the right a few pages. I'm just going to show you a couple of things here. Verse 7, it says, And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. There it is again, three and a half years. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. And then skip back down to verse 11. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So this is the second half of tribulation. I know the second half, it should be 1260. So maybe there's 30 days in the middle of the seven weeks where this is going on. In any event, I just wanted you to see, while we don't know when the rapture is going to happen, we don't know when tribulation is going to begin. When tribulation begins, it's going to be pretty clear what's going on because it's spelled out here. Okay, let's go back over to the text. I've probably totally confused you. That's what's being described, and it's been prophesied. We left off in verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians 2. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So right now, some people say this might be the church that's restraining. I think this is referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is restraining Satan because all this has to play out according to God's timing. So the Holy Spirit is right now restraining the ability of Satan to begin this whole mess that's going to happen. After the rapture happens, the church is taken out. Then the Holy Spirit is going to give Satan free reign for a little while, for seven years. Verse 8, And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That's the second coming. So it isn't going to last very long. Verse 9, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all the power and signs and false wonders. So see, Satan's going to have this power to be able to do this kind of stuff. But it's the second half of the seven-year tribulation, this three-and-a-half-year period that we saw in Daniel 9 that we're talking about. Three-and-a-half years is 1,260 days or 42 months. So let me show you a couple of things in Revelation on that. Let's go to Revelation 13:5. And that says, And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. See, there's the three and a half years. You see that? And then skip down verse 7. And it was given to him, that's the Antichrist, to make war with the saints, that's the nation of Israel, and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So there'll be this one world government. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. These are unbelievers who has been slain. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. So that's part of what's going on during that three and a half years. Let's keep going. I'm back over in the text. Verse 10. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So unbelievers are going to be deceived by Antichrist, and they're going to die in this final battle that I'm going to show you here in a minute. 
verse 11, and for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So these are unbelievers. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. So let me take you over to Ephesians 1. That's over to the left after Corinthians, after Galatians, Ephesians 1, 4. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. So that's talking about the very end times. All this is all going to happen to bring glory to God. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's why this happens, to bring glory to God. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So that summarizes the whole thing. That's what this is all about. It's all to bring glory to God. And that's why God chose us. That's why he gave us our faith. And so let's go back over to the text. It's all to bring glory to God. And right now we're going through this sanctification process that we talked about in depth last time. So I won't go into that this time. In verse 13, it describes the sanctification process. But we will become more Christ-like in this life as we go through the sanctification process. That's why we go through trials and things that we talked about last week. Verse 14, And it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you 1 John 3, 1 through 2. I'll just read that to you real quick. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. So we're going to be conformed to His image. So I'm back over in Second Thessalonians. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions by which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Okay, let me touch on this briefly. This word tradition, it's referring to what has been passed down and is now and included in God's word. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about the revelations that God gave to the writers of the Bible. It's the word of God. Now we have the Bible. 
It is not human tradition. It is not human religious practices that humans have come up with that now many denominations practice and they hand it down in its tradition. Let me show you why I'm telling you that it is not that. Because the Bible actually condemns human-type traditions. I'm going to first show you Isaiah 29:13. I'll just go over there and read it to you if you want. Isaiah is to the right of Psalm and Proverbs. 29:13 says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And let me tell you, there's so many things from my Catholic upbringing, and I don't mean to rail on Catholics here because they're not the only ones, but when you go to a church service and it's just everything is by rote and you recite a bunch of stuff and you look around and people look like robots reciting these great traditions and blah, 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 God is saying that does nothing for me because your heart's not in it. You're just there. You're kind of going through the traditions of men handed down and go over and look. I won't take us there now. Go read Matthew 6, 7 that says don't have prayers that are repetitious, which is exactly what counting the beads and doing the Holy Rosary are. Just repetitious prayers over and over and over again. It's not your heart. And so those are not prayers that God wants to hear. That's what human tradition is. Let me also take you over to Mark. Go over to the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, and I'll go to Mark 7. Show you some stuff there. Mark 7, I'll begin in verse 8 and 9. It says, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus was saying, here's the thing. You're putting man-made traditions ahead of what is written in the Bible. He was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And again, there's so many things, so many religions where you got humans who have come in and say, oh, God's spoken to me. We can all think of, I won't call them out by name. But there are religions that say they've received something and they'll take this book of whatever and they lay it next to the Bible and say, oh, yeah, we believe the Bible, but we got this other book because we got these other revelations and those are our traditions. That is counter and this is what Jesus was saying to not do. And it's so interesting to me to see how many things, for instance, that various popes have come up with that are totally contrary to what's written in the Bible, but are accepted as truth, even though they're in conflict with what the Bible has said. It's just really, really sad. And if you skip down to verse 13 there in Mark, it says, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So it's these traditions that then overrule God's word and invalidate it. And you can look at praying to saints, praying to dead saints, praying to Mary, saying Mary was a perpetual virgin. Baptism is required for salvation, purgatory, paying indulgences to get out of purgatory. All these things, they're not in the Bible. So enough of that. All I'm telling you is you got to read the Bible so you know what is Scripture. If somebody has a tradition, that's great, but compare it with Scripture. And if they're in Scripture to support it, you need to move away from it. Or if there's scripture that says quit doing it, 
like repetitious prayers that are by rote, that your heart's not in it. You're just moving your lips. Okay. Get off my soapbox. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's still hard for me. Hey, Larry. Got it. It's still uh, hard uh, for uh, me. Uh, <laughs> you talk to your counselor. Yeah. Okay. I had years of that that I'm trying to overcome. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. So he says, Jesus and God, our Father, so they're equal, they're co-equals in power and in deity. They have loved us from eternity. And so we as believers, we should have comfort and hope knowing that our salvation is secure and we are not going to have to go through the tribulation, the day of the Lord judgments. As we've talked about before, Ephesians 2.10, God's created good works for us to live into. He wants to do those good things through us. Now, I wanted to show you something in Revelation. I can close that part out. Let's go over to Revelation. I want you to go with me so I can just give this to you so you see the big picture of how this all goes down. As I mentioned, really beginning in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, describe the tribulation. And as I said, the church is not mentioned there. So now I want you to go to Revelation 19. I'm going to show you the end of that and then how the millennial kingdom begins in chapter 20 of Revelation. So let's begin in verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, this is Jesus Christ, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So he's coming to judge. This is the second coming of Christ. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, and that includes us as believers, we're going to come down with him because we were raptured up with him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Get ready. The battle of Armageddon is about to begin, and we're part of the army. We're going to be there, but you're going to see we do absolutely nothing except come in with him on the horse. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. So this is Satan's kingdom of darkness. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then skip down just for time's sake to verse 19. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. So this is Satan gathering all the unbelievers together and they are going to do battle. They're going to do battle with Jesus Christ. Here it comes. It's the battle of Armageddon, which, by the way, where does that come from? Flip over to the left of Revelation 16. You've heard of Armageddon, but maybe you've never seen it in the Bible. Revelation 16, 16, it says, And they gathered them together to the place in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Har means hill, and Mageddon, it's an area believed to be uh, Megiddo. I've actually been there. It is really where they believe the first battle in military history ever took place. There have been lots of battles there throughout history. 
I went there because I just wanted to see. It's thought that that's maybe where this battle with Satan's going to be, although others think that it's going to be a worldwide kind of thing. This area, Megiddo, is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Anyway, I've been there. And this is where Satan is going to gather them together to prevent the reign of Christ. All right, so let's go back over. Let's see how the Battle of Armageddon, I mean, here comes this war. It's going to be a big war, right? Big war. Where are you now? I'm back over in Revelation 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, being Christ, who sat upon the horse and against his army. That's us. Get ready. We're going to go to the battle. Verse 20, here it goes. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. That's step one. So the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. But look what happens, verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him, from Christ, who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Looks like it's over pretty quick. We do nothing. Okay? It is over. Done. Everybody's gone. All right? And then you skip down. Here comes the millennial kingdom. I'll just read on. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So I'll stop there for today, but that then begins the thousand-year millennial kingdom. The only people that move into the millennial kingdom are people who came to faith during the tribulation, Remember when seven-year tribulation began, no believers because the church was raptured out. There are people that come to faith during the tribulation. They then move into the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And then I told you what happens after that last time. So I won't go into further detail today. I now got you to the millennial kingdom. So let me wrap up what we talked about. Believers, we don't need to fear the tribulation and day of the Lord judgments because we don't participate. We're not going to be here, which should give us tremendous peace, knowing that our salvation is secure. The Antichrist will appear during the tribulation. In the second three and a half years, he's going to oppose God. He's going to use false miracles and signs and supernatural power to get the world to worship him. Many who previously claimed to believe in God will abandon their faith. They never had it to begin with, and they're going to worship the Antichrist. And then Christ is going to return in the second coming. He's going to throw the Antichrist into the lake of fire, and he's going to bind Satan for a thousand years, and then we're going to begin the thousand-year reign of Christ in the millennial kingdom. People receive God's judgment because they willfully refuse his truth and his grace, and they reject Jesus. But as Christians, we're going to share in Jesus' glory But it's so important for us to know Scripture so that we are not deceived. Since we know how bad God's judgments are going to be for unbelievers, we should be motivated to try to help save people and tell them about Christ and pray for them. And at the same time, we should have immense gratitude for all that Jesus Christ has done for us because we were just like those unbelievers had he not given us that gift. With that, 
I know I covered a lot, but let me open it up for any comments or questions that you might have. We're just amazed how much the rapture is in the Bible. There's a lot. It's covered a lot. <laughs> it's and covered yet, a lot no, in the New and, Testament. And yet none of the churches talk about it. It's just amazing. They don't want to deal with it. But it's covered a lot. <laughs> well, we've been reading a lot about it in the last oh, no, several months. But it's just interesting how little pastors cover it in day-to-day church. To the credit of those pastors, it's debated. There's four views on it, and they become very, very polarizing when you talk about it. It's like talking about politics. So you can still believe differently. You can be wrong, but you can still be Christian. And so why spend your time on talking about something that's only going to split us? So that's primarily why. He's talking about pre-tribulation rapture versus mid-tribulation rapture versus... No rapture. Rapture at the end, which I've never understood. Yeah. But... Or pre- partial preterists. You know, yeah. there's, there's so many views, and so it gets to be really complicated. And so you, on a Sunday sermon, you don't have time to spend to an hour go through all that because people, you, you know, people's attention span is about five minutes. But I think that's why it's so hard to cover. But what is great is if you take the time to read the Bible, there's a lot in here. There is a lot. You got to sort of piece it together. And I'm not saying I have it 100% right. I may not have it right, but I at least got the big picture, you know. And because I have the big picture, I have tremendous peace. Yeah, that's right. But I think it's important that the most important piece is you've got to believe in Jesus Christ because you want to make sure you, right. you're not left behind. Right. <laughs> that is right. Nice. Right? Yeah. Right. And I think that's a critical piece that all the congregation needs to get a hold of and Absolutely. You can believe in pre and post and mid and all that other stuff, but hey, guys, we all got to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of putting our yeah. faith in Jesus Christ. It's been interesting. Because we don't want to be left behind. There are a lot of people who believe that this has already been fulfilled, and that's where I have to debate a lot of people. Is it, It's called a partial preterist view, where all of this occurred in 70 AD, and so all the things you're seeing is symbolic, at least most of it is. And that's where I find myself debating people, is that there is no rapture. That's just a thing to explain how, in the end time, Jesus will bring his people to himself, not a caught up in the air. And so that's a challenge that I'm always having to wrestle with a lot of younger believers, because they're the partial preterist view, which just means it, it was fulfilled in 70 AD, has become really popular. And it ebbs and flows in popularity. They also said the Millennial Kingdom was a mm, The Millennial Kingdom, the symbolic way of explaining all... I think that more symbolically as opposed to literally. Literally. Or some think we're in it now. Right. <laughs> and the thing well, is, it's like, it doesn't, years, right? it doesn't feel like it's getting much better. I mean, right. And that's you know. their view, is that it's going to get better and better and better and better until Jesus shows up. And they would say, well, look at racism. Racism isn't as bad as it used to be. Look at a lot of different issues globally. Like, we are more at peace than we were than ever before. You know, like, there's a lot of things you can point to, and then there's a lot of stuff you can go, no, it's terrible. <laughs> I don't think it's gotten any better. <laughs> There's a lot of views. So all that to say, that's why people don't preach about it, because then we get into a big, what well, isn't better? It is good, you know. Like, we can, and then we, the primary thing that Larry doesn't get across is that trust Jesus, because that's how you win. You know, in the end, we win. And, and that's it's so hard to wrap your head around.
But I think the study of it, it's good because I think there's got to be a reason why you understand the end times. And I think what Larry's done is really brought us through a really clean and clear study that can give you confidence. Because I think sometimes that's the part where we struggle. Is like you start, re- who can understand this? No, you can't. You can't understand it. It does take a little effort. It takes a little bit of work. But I think that gives you the confidence in God's word. And that's why it's very much a blessing to study it. And then what's really great is how all of this, Old Testament and New Testament, all comes together. It all hangs together because the millennial kingdom is there to then fulfill the remaining promises that God made to Israel. That there would be a kingdom and that there would be a descendant of David on the throne. So that's what the millennial kingdom is all about. Exactly. And it gets so difficult to sort of have that be fulfilled figuratively or symbolically, which is what, where a lot of people go. And then you go, well, then what is literal in here, right? I think that becomes the problem, which is why I like this view the best, because it takes the most literal view of God's word where it is completely fulfilled throughout. There's nothing left hanging to kind of, you don't know where stuff goes. And then you go into the new heaven and the new right. earth which after happens. the millennial kingdom. Yep. So that enables all the promises that were made to Israel. Now, there are some people that say, oh, no, no, no. Once Israel rejected Jesus, the church took the place of Israel. So the church is receiving all the promises and blessings that were made to Israel. I mean, that's a view, but I just don't think that holds together, especially when you're reading about tribulation and a millennial kingdom and, you know. Yeah, it's called replacement theology. There's events that have yet happened. Larry, is there any indication of the number or degree of the remnant that's left behind after the rapture that come to faith? Because it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, like Larry and Chris are gone and however that happens. And if you were there and you're like, whoa, you know, there's like a Marvel movie where half the people just disappear. Right. Left behind. How would you? Well, what happens is initially, as I've mentioned, there's this apostasy. The very beginning of the tribulation, there are no believers at all. Right. Okay? So none. So So they look around and they go, gosh, I'm glad those guys are out of here. (laughs) Well, so then you play that out, right? So then there must be some (laughs) believers that can become evangelists. Like, how does the. And that's what happens because the Bible says, remember, (laughs) the, the. there are going to be Gentiles, but the focus is really on Israel. Mm-hmm. Okay? So there's actually, the Bible says there's going to be 12,000 witnesses from each of the 12 tribes mm-hmm. of Israel that are evangelists, mm-hmm. that are going to be there. Okay? So that at some point, they come to belief. They go, oh, this is what was prophesied from long ago. So 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, they begin evangelizing. So that's when people start coming to faith. People become believers during the tribulation. There's also going to be two witnesses that are sent by Jesus. We don't know who those people are, but there's two witnesses. So there will be a movement, but we don't know how many people come to faith. And there will be people who are killed because they have faith. Martyrs. And it's going to be an odd thing because the Holy Spirit won't indwell believers like he did in the current age. It'll be like Old Testament times where people might be moved by the Spirit. The, the, the Spirit might act on somebody for a period of time, like with Saul or with David. But it's not like an indwelling. It's all over my pay grade. And it's all hard for me to understand. But bottom line is I know he died on the cross yeah. for me. Yeah. And that price was paid. Amen. And my ticket has been punched. 
and I'm on my way. That's and I'm saying praise God Almighty. That's what I don't you have know. to worry about this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, that's good. Take somebody with you, Jimmy. I'm trying. Share the message. Well, Jimmy, that's you it. Won't be around to have to worry about that. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why God has told us about the end times because it's going to be bad, and as bad as that is, eternity separated from God's even worse. Mm-hmm. But if you go read the stuff that happens in tribulation, it is bad. Bad, bad, bad. And so you go, if I love these people, i got to at least warn them that this is where they're headed. So I'm very thankful that God gave it to us so that we do have that motivation. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.